Dr H.B. Turbot was the radio doctor for more than 40 years, pre and post the Second World War, dispensing advice on a range of health and social issues until his retirement in 1984. His broadcasts span child-rearing, vaccination, through to healthy ageing and nutrition. I had a letter recently which revealed our shortcomings in nutritional knowledge. It ran, Would you be so kind as to give me all the differences in nutritional values between coomeras and potatoes? Many times I've stuck up for the potato, that much maligned and falsely described as a fattening food. The potato contains almost no fat. One pound of potatoes contains less starchy material than one pound of bread. Neither of these foods being fattening, eaten daily in proper amount. Well, Dr. Turbot's often very enlightened opinions for the time fascinated Dr. Claire McIndoe, an Aotearoa Dunedin-based researcher and historian. She's based her PhD thesis on him, the radio doctor broadcasting health into the home. Well, now she's won the Judith Binney Writing Award to help her turn the thesis into a book. I asked Claire how she heard about Harold Turbot's broadcasts. Initially, when I began my research for my PhD, I was looking at rheumatic fever, and I found his guidelines to health, which are the books that he published that were intended to be kept in the home and sort of a reference material. And they were fascinating. You know, they're very dated, so I was really enjoying reading through them and sort of reflecting on how times have changed. And then looking into who it was that wrote these, I sort of discovered, oh, there's not a lot about him, and particularly that these books were based on his radio talks. So although there has been a little bit of work and and a few mentions about Dr. Turbot and his time in the Department of Health, the content of his talks remains largely unexplored, and I was really fascinated by that. And then I discovered that the Alexander Turnbull had all the manuscripts, and, uh, well, that set me down a path. I mean, as you say, some of the the talks may sound dated, but in many ways he was almost ahead of his time, wasn't he? I mean, certainly particularly um, advocating on on behalf of Māori and health uh, inequalities. He was incredibly progressive for the time, and I think that does need to be acknowledged, as well as that a lot of his advice is still incredibly applicable. It was very down-to-earth, hands-on, practical advice. And even though some of our knowledge has changed... A lot of those very practical elements remain. Even, you know, we've gone back to having messages about hand-washing with COVID. That's something that he'd been preaching all those years ago and talking about how important it was and blowing your nose properly and not coughing and uh, many, many parallels with what we've, we've been hearing recently. Well, I did. I just had a flashback to Ashley Bloomfield, actually, and, of course... Uh, Dr. Turbot became uh, Director General of Health. But beforehand, in terms of being, uh, so he was the radio doctor, was that his handle? So, yes and no. He was known as Dr. Turbot. People did know who he was, but it was more of a colloquial sort of, a term of endearment almost, where he was the radio doctor. What do you make of him? What do you think he was like as a man? I've been so privileged to have some people write to me about having worked with him And the thing that comes through is that it seems like he had a wonderful sense of humour. And you do get that within his talks. So um, he has some fabulous lines. One of my favourites is that he's talking about healthy ageing and planning for retirement. And he goes, you are as old as you are, not as young as you feel. Uh, And so I think he had a wonderful sense of humour, but also he was very non-judgmental. He always tried to keep race out of it where he could. So if he was talking about 
issues that were perhaps framed in a, a negative way towards Māori or Pacifica, he always tried to just draw it back and say, this isn't about race, this is about stressed families. Or, um, you know, trying to keep judgment out of it and just trying to make health approachable and so that people could understand it and take away some knowledge that they could apply to their own lives. He would have been a very interesting figure if he was still alive during the pandemic and particularly with those parallels with Ashley Bloomfield as well. Of course, he started out in the 1940s. That 40-year span was fascinating, the 1940s to 1984. Uh, So much progress in terms of health, but also the role of radio. So 40s, 50s, so different to to times now when there's so much choice. The radio really had such a vital place in every home. Radio was incredibly popular. It was just such a revolution when it came to New Zealand, and it maintained popularity through until the 70s and even into the 80s, because even if you had television, it wasn't guaranteed that you would necessarily have good reception if you were rurally based, for instance. Or it wasn't until 1971 that everyone could be watching the same program across the country. But radio, particularly in those early years, so in the 20s and 30s and 40s, It was a way of being able to connect with other people. It was a way of building a culture and a nation. And the variety of what was on radio was incredible. It was a very important source of information and education, uh, whether that be the correspondence school, whether it be the home sciences being taught over the radio to women in the home, or whether it be that you just want to learn what the latest dance is and you happen to follow the steps on the radio as they teach you to the music. What do you hear in his tone, his approach, and did it change over those 40 years? Unfortunately, I've not heard him from the 1940s or 50s uh, when he was first beginning, and I think that would have been lovely to hear so that you could really track that progression. But it's sort of warm, friendly authority is how I would frame it myself. Certainly people have written to me remembering listening to him and and the fact that they found his voice to be very distinct and comforting in some circumstances as well. It was very reliable and, and they associated being able to trust him with that voice. Yeah, I mean all about trust of course. How influential, Claire, do you think he was over that time in terms of not just conveying the best possible information for health and also social issues over that time, but people acting on his advice? Well, that's the million-dollar question. He seems to have had popularity. Certainly from the length of span he, he spent on the radio, we can assume that he did have some level of popularity. Certainly in his later years there was discussion about, well, what do we do when he retires? Uh, he's so popular, this is such a valuable resource. And certainly even in fan interaction, so fan mail from the 1940s, it's a wealth and it's really varied. And there's people who are writing to him about deeply personal issues and asking for advice. The same with tracking in the listener, we can see people writing in and talking about him. So there seems to have been a level of engagement and there seems to have been a level of popularity there. Unfortunately, it's impossible for us to say exactly, oh, well, you know, people strictly followed his routines and everyone listened to him. We can't assume that, but it would certainly seem as though 
people who I've spoken to do remember him and did follow his advice, or they had parents who they remember listening to Dr. Turbot and following what Dr. Turbot said or referring to his guidelines of health as published works. So within that small-scale study, we can see that he was perceived to be a source of good, solid, approachable knowledge. What were the variety of questions that came in from listeners? Incredibly varied. So you have teenagers writing in about their acne. Uh, You have older gentlemen writing in about their greying hair and can they reverse it. This is not a fan mail, this is through the listener. I did have someone writing to Dr. Turbot suggesting that you rub an onion on your head to prevent hair loss. That did not go to broadcast, that was not verified. But in terms of deeply personal letters, we have women writing about their concerns of having breast cancer or about issues of abortion, which was highly controversial and was very much deemed to be not appropriate and that it wasn't something that you should be doing in the 1940s. But he would address them? But he would address them, Claire? Was he quite fearless, do you think, in in that way? If he felt somebody needed advice on breast examinations or or sexual conditions, as you say, quite shocking, particularly in those early years. He was pretty fearless in that way. Every person who wrote in got a letter back, which is incredible. And some of those letters, he would be replying in that deeply personal nature and he would be writing to them very much like, I understand and can appreciate what you were going through. Uh, I have an instance of him making an appointment for someone and referring them on to a doctor and saying, you should go and see this person. Uh, I've arranged it for you. You just need to go. So you can see him taking time and caring about the people who are writing to him. And certainly in cases discussing, discussing abortion, he might not necessarily say this is the right thing or the wrong thing, but he would always sympathize with their situation and say, I can understand where you are coming from. The sort of social issues, I guess we've touched on some of them, but what, I mean, how broad was his scope? Things like mental health. Yes, so we do see mental health being discussed. Uh, we see that right from the 1940s onwards. So with World War II, with soldiers returning, there was some discussion about mental health, not in the terms that we would use and not discussing PTSD as such, but sort of talking about the stresses and that people returning home from the war may find it difficult for a little bit. Going right through to the 1980s, we have a wide variety of of issues discussed, including drugs and alcohol, so substance abuse and what that meant. Uh, We have the contraceptive pill discussed, and he was actually censored from talking about that in 1961, so did not broadcast on the contraceptive pill until 1969 because it was believed to be too controversial. And it was also believed to be a discussion that should be held between a woman and her GP, not in the family room or not in the kitchen, in the family home. Uh, There's a number of talks about venereal disease, and that's talked about from the 1940s through into the 1980s. And that idea that this is something that you catch off people, not from things as well, When there's a moral panic about teenagers in the 1950s, he's talking about teenagers, which are really a newfangled thing at that point. Even the term teenagers is a 1950s term. And he's talking about teenagers and and what they need and why they might be acting out and what parents can do in these situations. And sex education, that's an incredibly important topic that he discusses and about how to talk to your children about 
puberty and, and development and sex and what that means. You know, over 40 years, the, the health advice that was perhaps given in the 1940s was the best scientific and health information available at the time. And if you compare and contrast that to the 1980s, I mean, I was thinking of even things like um, sudden uh, infant death syndrome, that advice changed quite a lot. Would you have found that as as well? Any examples of that, that he kept up with the change in, in research and wasn't afraid to say, look, I know that in the 1940s this was my advice, but actually that it's now changed? Yes, so we do see that. One of the most obvious examples is around smoking. So in the 1940s, he talks about smoking and he talks about how children shouldn't smoke because it'll stunt their development and it's not good for them. And you shouldn't smoke to excess. And he does address that. Then as we go on, we do see him sort of talking about smoking and cigarettes as being a way of relieving stress. And so it's a, it's good to prevent heart disease. Uh, and then we have the revelation that smoking causes cancer. And then it's an instant change of, nope, don't smoke at all. You shouldn't do it. Allegedly, he gave up his five-cigarette-a-day habit instantly. As soon as he found out that smoking caused cancer, he went cold turkey. And that's something that he pushes in his talks, and he, he addresses, oh, I, I did say it was good for stress, but now we know it's not good for you at all, so don't smoke, don't take it up, don't do it. Regarding the contraceptive pill, I mean, he had a little bit of an argument as to why, when he was told he was censored, he really fought back about the idea that he wouldn't be allowed to talk about it. And he was sort of saying, well, you know, I talk about venereal disease at 11am on a Saturday. Why can't I explain what the contraceptive pill is? I'm not telling people to go out and take it. I'm just giving them knowledge so that they can make decisions. Yeah, I, I love his spirit in all of it and, and just his practicality. So 11am on Saturday mornings, was that his regular slot? So during the 1940s, he was at... 7 to 7.30 in the morning, Monday through to Saturday. So no broadcasts on a Sunday. Then from the 1950s through to the 80s, he was at 11 to 11.30 a.m. in the morning on a Saturday. So when people were at home, it was broadcast at a time where the perceived audience would be available. So it was perceived to be women who needed to hear this health information because they were responsible for, you know, the family and making sure that everyone was healthy and safe and happy. And so at 7, 7.30 in the morning in, in the 1940s, that's when women would be at home, maybe cooking breakfast or getting the kids ready for school and, and those sort of home-based elements. Later on, we have women moving into the workforce, but on a Saturday, that would be a, a time that was easier for them to be able to listen. So that was very much taken into consideration with when it was broadcast, is when will people be able to hear this? When will they be able to absorb that knowledge? You've won the uh, Judith Binney Writing Award, Claire, so that you can work on your thesis for a publication. Are there any gaps that you would perhaps love some help from our listeners with? Would that be helpful to you? I mean, how, you know, how much more is there to learn about him? Oh, absolutely. And for me, you know, it really brings that history alive as well of hearing people who remember this person. What do they remember? What were their impressions? You know, what did he mean to them? What role did he play? Or I've had people say, oh, I remember my mother listening. And that in itself is a wonderful memory for people to have. Um, so please, if anyone would like to write to me, I'd love to read it. 
Dr. Claire McIndoe, if you have any information you think might be useful for her book on Dr. Turbot, please send it to us to pass on, standing room only, at rnz.co.nz. Uh, in fact, we're already getting feedback on this. Rachel Whiteman has been in touch to say that her mother listened to Dr. Turbot religiously. He gave such excellent advice. And our thanks to Ngā Sound and Vision for the clips of the radio doctor that we've been playing this afternoon.